so yeah, so I'm going to talk to you about uh, pediatric genital urinary uh, issues. You know, torsion was like the thing, first thing that came to my head, and I was like, my God, torsion, you know, it's you know, really high incidence in neonates and really high incidence in teenagers, and of course, adults get it as well, but I was like, I'm not going to be able to hit that. So I was like, and I've, I've always, been, I am the quintessential ADHD, love to do little topics of little things, my mind's bouncing all over. So to hit torsion, I kind of said, James, make someone else do it. And I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I don't think anyone else, no one's doing it today. So, uh, so I'm sure you'll get plenty of torsion things. The one thing, I, uh, you see what we're going to be kind of talking about today, but the one thing I wanted to hit on torsion was, you know, everyone says don't ever go off the N of one. You don't want to, you don't want to mold your practice off the N of one. I think I've had two kids now who, uh, little, two boys who didn't, uh, teenage boys, pre-teenage boys, that didn't really tell their parents that they had something going down there. And then they, three days later, they've got a hard, swollen testicle. And it's probably, you know, I don't particularly follow up on these patients, but the usual rigor mortis is that they, the testicle dies, and then uh, there's a theory out there that antibodies being produced that may kill off or may affect fertility of the other testicle. So I always think it's my one, you know, sales pitch to you is abdominal pain in kids, just look down there. And because, you know, some of the residents, and I'm not pointing fingers to anyone here, it's in, because I work with many, many uh, backgrounds of residents, they're just like, oh, no, I'm going to do a GE exam. I'm like, no, no, it's, that N of 1 is well worth looking down there to see, just to make sure. And you're just like, it's a quick check, and then you're good. So we'll hit some of these topics today. Um, quick little embryology. I'm not going to uh, get into this too much. But if there's a potential communication, that's called the process vaginalis. It's communicating if there is communication between the peritoneum and the scrotal sac, uh, this being the scrotal sac. Anything can come through from uh, liquid fluids to um, uh, mesenteric fat or uh, bowel material, which causes uh, hernias. If it uh, closes up, uh, it's obliterated, and that should be the normal. Uh, and then we're going to kind of be talking about hydrocele's versus hernias in a little bit uh, on some of the patients. But I kind of want to start with a little bit of embryology, or yeah, a little bit of embryology there. Um, I think this is worth talking about as well because. Um, you know, epididymitis was one of the things I kind of talked about. I was like, oh, no problem. Slam dunk, get an ultrasound, is negative. You know, you're done. And then, I, and, then I, and then we'll kind of talk when we talk a little bit more about epididymitis. But I just wanted to point out a few uh, features um, on this slide was that the epididymitis is uh, closely related to the testicle and that the appendix of the uh, testes is pretty closely related in that area too. And that was about the main things I wanted to point out here. Um, also, just for nomenclature, when I kind of uh, talk about paraphimosis, the base, I did have a huge slide of testicles and penises, but I thought that was just a little bit over, overboard just for, to point out the sulcus. So the sulcus is kind of right there at the base of the uh, gland's penis. So that, that's what the sulcus is. So we'll kind of talk about that a little bit when we talk about paraphimosis. All right, so uh, one of our graduating uh, third years, Howard. So, you know, um, you're working at Long Beach, since we're bashing on Long Beach today, and you get the shotgun, uh, the kid with the testicle pain comes in, and they get the ultrasound, they get a urinalysis, and you're like, okay, so it's uh, testicle pain, and then you already get the ultrasound report. So you're like, okay, so you go to the patient, you know, what age, can I hit some of these things for me? What age, what, um, what are some of the things you kind of typically, well, yeah, so yeah, give me the classic, give me the classic epididymitis. Gradually gotten worse. Um, that's about it. And then when you examine them, it's like posterior, superior, 
Anyone else? So like some of the things he said was like 17 years of age, uh, presents uh, with a kind of a, you said a two to three day type, like gradual. gradual onset, versus I think like, and I think, swollen tender, and I think like the, you know, things that we kind of go through are minor uh, torsions of sorts, either testicular torsion, or I kind of point out the appendix of the testicles, so that's another thing can sometimes torse, and there's multiple things that can go on the groin. But um, that's, that, that's pretty good. How about diagnosis? What about diagnosis? Tessa, birthday girl. Uh, ultrasound, yeah. Yeah, even before ultrasound, I, you know, when I was... Just yeah, and it was when I was doing it back before ultrasound, they, you know, either clinical diagnosis, they had to make that decision 20, 30 years ago of ultrasound, I mean, gross, grossly inspecting or just clinical diagnosis versus they had to go, it's a hot testicle, we got to go to the OR. So that was sometimes then, but, you know, now we have ultrasound to help with that. Cremaster plus or minus. Cremaster plus or minus. And um, uh, for first years, what's, uh, what's Cremaster's and uh, what is that, how does that help differentiate? Oh, for the first years. For the first years. Um, so you can pinch the uh, inside of the thigh and that should levit cause the uh, ipsilateral testicle to uh, retract into the pelvis a little bit. And that is lost if you have torsion because the cremaster is partially twisted as well. So I typically, I, uh, pinching might be one technique. I, or touching, like a, I think it was one thing that's described as like a stroke of the ipsilateral side of the inner thigh. Um, as, you know, you have to bear with me because most of my patients are uh, uh, young ones. But uh, uh, as you get more endowed, as the scroll sac gets, scroll sac gets heavier, then some of that cremaster uh, reflex uh, gets less pronounced. So like a one-year-old little boy, his entire testicle, it pretty much kind of hides and goes into the peritoneum. It's, it's pretty exaggerated. And then like a 17-year-old boy, you might just, well, this is true, because this is like, you, with varying ages, you get varying degrees of uh, cremaster. And then a 17-year-old, you may just get like a little, little wrinkle of a little, of a, of a little motion, so it gets less and less pronounced. Adults, I have no idea because I should not be doing uh, adult exams, but I'm assuming it's probably the same thing as a 17-year-old with a little wink, a little little uh, pronouncement. Uh, treatment, Cooper, what do you do for epididymitis? So nine-year-old, let's say it's you know it's not the typical uh, age range, nine-year-old. A uh, cute little boy with his Harry Potter book comes in, ultrasound diagnosis, epididymitis, no torsion, great flow, GC chlamydia treatment. Okay, and honestly, that's what I thought. I thought it was you treat them like they had a bacterial infection, uh, you do some scrotal support, some NSAIDs, and if they're sexually active, you sure you check, you talk, and you treat them presumptively because you know those tests don't come back right away. Um, and I'll get into a little bit, but uh, epididymitis is described as being in any age, and it's an inflammation. So there is thought to be either anatomic abnormalities, uh, there is thought to be either chemical irritation from urine, uh, bacterial, viral uh, as causes, causes. So it's not just uh, just a classic um, age of, of um, sexually active uh, men, although that, that kind of prompts you to think of GC chlamydia and other sexually transmitted diseases. And then Howard pretty much hit the other things of kind of this uh, slow, progressing redness, painfulness. We talked about ultrasound. Typically, you're looking to rule out torsion. Um, 
uh, epididymo-orchitis, so, you know, the epididymis is so close to the orchitis or the testicle that sometimes there's a little bit of inflammation associated with the epididymis as well. Um, the reason I put sexually, same thing for the reason why I put uh, sexually active teens is, you know, to think that and to, uh, to treat them. And so here's, here, oh, I hit the wrong one. Uh, how do I hit play somehow, or do I just hit the uh, stop button again? Oh, there it is. So initially, the positive urine culture reports historically, like over the last 20, 30 years, had like a positive urine culture. I guess if you're using it as your criterion standard for uh, bacterial infection was somewhere between 7 to 83%. So kind of a wide-based range, and that's probably why, you know, it's pretty much thought, treat them. And more recent stuff in the last five to ten years is like, well, maybe it's a little bit less than 25% of positive urine cultures. And Santialis and all, like just up the street at Harbor, they, did, they looked at kids, and they did a retrospective. So right there, there's a little bit of limitation. They looked at 160 kids, uh, and they didn't have the best urine culture rate. I think it was about 70% uh, of uh, urine cultures were collected. So that's kind of a, uh, I wish it was higher. And they found, I think it was... Um, 4% uh, of these patients, 97 kids, had urine culture sent, of whom four, uh, four children had positive urine cultures. So the confidence interval there was 1% to 10%. So in this study, the true answer was somewhere between 1% and 10%. So that's kind of a little bit broad range, but they, you know, of the 70% of the kids, so it's a little bit less. So I would have loved to have seen, you know, more. Uh, this, I can't, I think this came out in the last couple of years. So it's, a, you know, and I think the, 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 you may see, kind of keep your eye out for stuff coming on epididymitis and if people do more stuff on uh, pediatric patients and urine cultures that it may be less and less and less. And what this kind of helps us out with is, hey, maybe those kids who are, you know, oh, I don't know, maybe outside of the UTI range in boys greater than one year of age and maybe not quite yet sexually active, the cute little Harry Potter reading boy with glasses and just kind of, you know, shy and timid. Obviously, you may still check in, you know, because they also get sexually active. But maybe that 1 to 10-year-old range, you may in the future, it may become um, a standard of care not to treat them and wait for the culture to come back to see. Maybe they have a chemical viral-induced uh, thing. At this point, this is by no means, I think, a slam dunk, like, oh, stop antibiotics. But, you know, I think in the future you may see that. Well, yes? Just because it's not growing anymore. Correct. You could have an inadequate. Down, I mean, you can have a, like a, the essence of an abscess down there, right? That would be isolated from the urinary tract. Right, and that may not communicate to the uh, urine, or you may have an inadequate urine sample, or and then you have the whole bag of mixed flora or multiple organisms, and yeah. In the epididymis yeah. itself. Um, Mechanically, I just intuitively think that way. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess if I guess further down the road, if they could, if there was a further delineation of that, uh, that these are, you know, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, then what else is it? Is it a, either either a viral or is it? How do you how do you say this is a chemical epididymitis? Um, I am trying to remember. I was reading some stuff from like the 70s, and I think they went to surgery, and I think they did some aspirations of the epididymis. But that's like, you know, the risk benefits of going to the OR for a, you know, increased flow to the epididymis region. 
um, you know, it's kind of like, a, okay, we're done. And that's actually a very good point that I hadn't completely thought through that uh, does a negative urine culture translate to no bacterial infection in the epididymis? I don't know. Any other thoughts or? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't completely think that one through. In order to get that answer, they have to have the gold standard, which is a biopsy of the epididymis. Right? I don't think they, they're going to ever do that. I don't think ethically that would be a good question to answer from a research perspective. Um, because aside from the urine culture, how else are we going to get those answers? So they'd have to actually take a piece of the epididymis, see what grew out, and then correlate that with the, uh, with the uh, culture results in the lab. So I don't, uh, I don't think it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea just to treat them if you suspect there's an infection there, because you're really never going to know unless you're in court and they say he had an abscess and you missed it. Yeah. Yeah. This came up um, on one of my cases of a pediatric uh, testicle in which, um, I think I can't remember which urologist it was, so I was like, oh, epididymitis is way over diagnosis, actually just the, it's a torsion of the appendix of the testes on uh, children. And I was like, really? You know, every single time? And so this is like a knowledge deficit of mine, and I, tr I try to figure out, like, you know, how good is ultrasound at looking at, to say that uh, this is uh, the epididym, looking at torsion of the appendix versus uh, epididymitis, and I didn't find a lot, and I, you know, was hoping, I think it was, is it Dr. Fox that's uh, kind of the ultrasound guru of the group? And um, so I had a personal communication with one of our uh, pediatric uh, radiologists, which is, you know, just one person, and yeah, it's a very gray zone uh, that, you know, the uh, appendix of the uh, testes may be kind of hidden inside of the uh, epididymis area. Uh, you could have a little bit of both going on. You could have a little bit of increased flow. You could have the torsion uh, of the appendix of the testes. But the good thing is, is that typically, uh, what's the treatment for uh, if there is a torsion in the appendix of the testes? Yeah, Tyler. Yeah, it's pain control. So it's 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 you know typically just a pain control, non-operative management of the patient. Uh, so you know, given that, uh, it's you know you might have a little bit of gray zone there. And that's what I was hoping to see. I wasn't sure if uh, Dr. Fox was here to kind of comment on that or if anyone else had any comments on that or the ultrasound findings. He's in Hawaii. He's in Hawaii. Nice. Any other comments on that? All right. So you've got a, yeah. So that one we just talked about. Do you ever see the little blue dot? Seen I've never seen a blue dot. Any blue dots? <laughs> Once. Yeah. Once? Oh, on the scan. Yeah. 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 Hey, look at that. <laughs> yeah, Cooper. Yeah, and that's the thing is like it's sonographer dependent as to how well of an exam. And he, from what he could say, from what he said was that uh, it is fairly good at distinguishing the epididymis from the appendix of the testes. They can differentiate as to which one seems to be aggravated or inflamed or or uh, what seems to be going on. The um, but the one thing he did also comment on was that the appendix of the testes might be buried into the epididymis. So I'm trying to you know gross pathology, looking at that one prior slide, one of the first few slides we had, 
thinking, okay, it could be buried in there, so you may have a torsion in the appendix, which might kind of show up as on our 2D screen as increased flow to that particular area. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. So what, what's, what's your practice about, let's say it's a teenager presents like James described, a gradual onset, clearly several days, has pyuria, has a tender epididymis on clinical exam, and a normal-sized testicle. Do you get an ultrasound on that kid? It's uh, typically ordered from triage. Uh, now, let's say it hadn't been ordered, um, then I do get uh, I do get the ultrasound. And uh, here's a th uh, here's a funny thing is that uh, it depends on where you work. Uh, at um, Long Beach, 24-hour coverage of ultrasound, so it's like one of those things like, oh, it's so easily available. Families are so concerned about torsion. Um, even though your gut instinct says it's not torsion, why wouldn't you get it or why not get it? Um, Loma Linda, there's not 24-hour coverage of ultrasound. And at 3 in the morning, how, you know, do you really want to call someone in for epididymitis? Um, and I think it's CHLA. I've heard from colleagues that uh, radiology fights you on it, that do you need it? Do you really need it? So it's, it's um, yeah, because not every institution has 24-hour coverage of uh, ultrasound to get formal diagnoses. Yeah. My personal practice, since you asked, is um, if the testicle is normal size, I don't think that there's any compelling reason to get an ultrasound to say that it's epididymitis. Because especially if there's pyuria, you're going to end up treating the kid anyway. If the testicle is enlarged, then I would get the ultrasound. Because and then, given that the history is clearly gradual onset several days with pyuria, Certainly anybody who's a torse testicle that just happened five minutes ago is going to be normal size, and of course I would get the ultrasound. Yeah. But if it's a gradual onset, I don't think that everybody needs an ultrasound as long as their testicle is normal size. Once the testicle grows, then I worry about a testicular abscess, and I get the ultrasound for that reason, not because I need to know whether it's epididymitis. I want to know it's epididymal orchitis or epididymal orchitis with an abscess. Well, you're not going to know there's pyuria, right? Because you're not going to sit around. If you're suspecting torsion, you're not going to sit around. Right. So, so, the, so the first, in my mind, the first decision point is gradual onset, three days. Okay. All right. And once that's the case, then normal-sized testicle, no ultrasound in my practice routinely. And large testicle gets an ultrasound. And I think that's defensible. Now, if it's abrupt onset, of course, everybody gets an ultrasound. Large testicle. Okay. Any other thoughts about whether you forego ultrasound Gradual onset testicular pain. I mean, things don't always present typically. It's non-invasive, quick, easy. I usually get it. And like you were saying, the parents are often concerned about it. I've, I've seen a couple cases of torsion where I really was not suspecting it. It was not a classic presentation. I think another important point actually I learned this from McCoy is if you get a case that's pretty typical, don't wait for your ultrasound. Yeah. Call the urologist. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Then, you know, put the ball in their court and then give your ultrasound in addition. But always make your call. Yeah. Do you happen to remember those uh, cases of the kind of the odd uh, torsion that kind of presented? or? I just remember a, a kid where it was supposedly gradual onset and I think it was a teenager. And it was not that impressive of, of an exam. I think he may have had a torsion on the other side before something, but it, it was not your typical look or feel or amount of pain. I mean, that's anecdotal. I'm just saying it's a right. non-invasive test <laughs> for a serious thing. 
similar case as an intern as well. This, this, I think he was like 15 or 16, and he had been waiting on it for a couple of days. So when he presented, he was actually not under whatsoever. So palpation, just sitting there, and he actually had a torso. I mean, it could be that they are torsing and detorsing or something. Was this like a, and was his a normal pairing testes or was it enlarged or, yeah. But he was sitting Yeah, because at that point it's uh, kind of lost all flow and, yeah. You know, that's, that's actually a good point, because I think I talk to the women when I'm doing their, because how many first public exams you do in that ped side, you know, they get their first exam in the ED, and I talk to them through everything. I'm like hand-holding them. And then men, I just kind of like, I just drop things, and I'm just like, oh, you're a guy. I'm a guy. Let's just get it over and quickly. But that's a good point that it's a teenage kid, and they're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, moving on to a penile swelling. So this kiddo, uh, which I believe is about um, 11 months old, uh, has two days of increasing penile swelling and uh, pain for the past day. He's still able to urinate and the patient is uncircumcised. Alright, so some of the key features, oh, I did it again. Some of the key features we've got here is uh, penis is here. There's a sulcus. So this is, let me pull, pull this down. Behind the light? Behind the one that says do not. Sulcus of the penis right there. So that has the tip of the glands penis. And this is the foreskin that was typically over uh, the, um, the glands penis that's now been pulled back. So uh, what is this? One of the interns, please. Other, uh, oh, there's So um, tell me a little bit about uh, newborn, toddler, foreskin hygiene. Mom comes into you, let's say, and let's say she's here for unrelated thing, uh, balanitis or, you know, kid has some URI, and she's like, oh, you know, his foreskin never goes back. Um, what do you tell them? Because they will ask for whatever reason they ask you. I don't know why. Yeah, uh, well, not for a long period of time, but uh, uh, Mike. So, how do, how do you how do you counsel a mom on uh, on foreskin hygiene? Um, if it doesn't ever pull back, it's totally normal. In fact, there can be adhesions through some people's entire life, but it should eventually, when you want to have sexual function, it should be able to come back a little bit, if not all the way. 
Um, so I wouldn't worry about it until they're at least age 13, 14. Um, and in terms of hygiene, I uh, wouldn't do anything special other than just take a bath and gently wash the area with soap and water. Um, I wouldn't try to pull it back, force it back, alcohol swab it, do anything like that. Perfect. So I think you hit some of the key things that I'm, a, I'm a notorious for this now. Um, the, there's light uh, lesions or adhesions that kind of occur between the um, glands, the, ureth the, um, the glands penis and the foreskin on the inside. So those adhesions will not completely dehiss until usually they kind of talk about four to six years of age uh, that they will start to kind of open up on their own. And what happens is sometimes you get overly anxious or parents who are told you must clean the penis, you know, your child has is uncircumcised or risk for your increased risk of urinary tract infection. You've got to clean this area, so sometimes they will forcefully bring back the foreskin, and uh, sometimes get stuck because it gets pulled back too far, and then venous congestion occurs. And that's kind of how um, that's kind of happen how it happens acutely on patients. Also, another classic way that it happens is if the the nurse who's getting a urine catheter uh, specimen for you happens to pull it back and it gets stuck in that one position, and then swelling starts to occur. Um, Self-exploration uh, on kids. Uh, getting older, uh, Mike brought it up, that during sexual intercourse that the foreskin will kind of go back uh, behind the sulcus or I guess uh, proximal to the sulcus and get stuck there, or not stuck there, but we'll get to that position. Um, and then it needs to be put back. And then I found, of course, you know, you, you got to love it when you find... Uh, I was like, why would any, I don't know. So yeah, so piercings can, uh, this, this patient also got, out of the British Journal of Urology, also got it. And so by, just behind the sulcus, uh, the increasing swelling. Um, and, I, you know, I, I was thinking, like, you know, yeah, this, I mean, it doesn't seem like it could be that bad because it seems like the corpus callosum, the, you know, the penile shaft should be able to take care of this. This is, I mean, this is kind of a little disclaimer, 80-year-old uh, diabetes, so poor uh, blood supply. And he had like a partial amputation of his um, uh, of his uh, penis, and I forget the exact old time length. I think they don't exactly remember how long it had been parified most for. Uh, so what do you do? How do you treat these? Who's who's done a parified mosis reduction? So how'd you do it? Just pull it back. Just pull it back. Yeah. And, and push the glands uh, in. Good. So you kind of did something like this. So uh, and this one's really easy to see, but there you've got the um, uh, you've got the distal end of the penis, and you kind of position your thumbs there, and you kind of bring behind uh, the foreskin with your fingers and bring it back over the penis. Uh, I think Tyler, did you say, or Mike, did you say you did one? Yeah. How 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 did how did you do it? Was it an older patient, younger patient? How old were your patients? My guy was like 30. 30 year old and yours? Like a little kid. Little kid. Yeah. Did you, what kind of pain medication or? Yeah. I, no, I. I just did it really fast. And it, it looked like it was going to be hard, so I just. And how, do you know how long it had been stuck for? Yeah, uh, and that's and that's a great question. So, like, you know, when do you use? Uh, so, what are your options for analgesia? Let's just Tyler. So, you, you you know, you've been you've been around the block now. So, like, what kind of things can you think about for analgesia for a procedure like this? 
And let's say you know it got a little, it got a little trickier. Let's say you know it had been like Mike's patient who wasn't um, who wasn't doing well. Uh, what what are some of the options you've got? Well, it depends if you know if you're anticipating a really painful procedure, you use ketamine for things like conscious sedation for this kid. But you can also use I'm talking about like you can use morphine. You can use I don't know if like topical anesthetic would be helpful, but um, nerve block or something. Like that. Yeah. So remember, you got the penile block also. So, like, I think in Mike's case, like, a penile block in a 30-year-old may be, like, a, something to consider because you can talk to that patient and be like, you know what, this seems cruel, but we're going to put a couple of injections into the base of your penis and numb up the area, and it's described as being a, a good enough a regional block. Uh, try that on a 4-year-old. Yeah, you, you know, those, you know, when you have a 4-year-old who's highly anxious and highly apprehensive, good luck, uh, and the the... And, and, and I am guilty of one also of doing, a, I thought it was going to be a quick one because it was an acute uh, paraphimosis, and I thought I'd quickly get it over. Um, it didn't go as smoothly, so I took docked off a couple points for on myself. But typically, uh, kids are going to remember this. It's, it's pretty painful. Uh, it's not an easy procedure. Uh, and a penile block is, you know, when you look at it in the eyes of the parents, eye of the kid, what's best for the kid? Procedural sedation, yeah. Are you, uh, well, I was just laughing because I remember one. Uh, anybody remember Lynn Lula, one of our residents from yeah. uh, probably six, seven years ago? She's a tall, blonde, pretty lady, and she had a guy, I forget how old he was, adult in, in bed two, and he had a paraphimosis. And, and I don't remember how it came about, but I remember she couldn't get it back, and basically we just used consistent direct pressure on the engorged foreskin to like reduce its size and so I remember I don't know whether I did it or I instructed her to do it stand there and hold this guy's yeah. <laughs> sort of squeeze it for 10 minutes or so and then once you, I forget whether, which one of us ended up doing that but then it reduced after we yeah. And that, that is that is excellent experience for the med students to learn become more intimate with their patients <laughs> But, uh, you know, if it, if it occurs acutely, like, you know, let's say uh, a nurse has happened, to, a new nurse happened to be a little bit overly aggressive with the uh, 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 bringing back the foreskin and now you've got a stuck paraphimosis, just quickly reduce it. Other than that, uh, the compression uh, method uh, anecdotally has worked on a handful of kids, great. There are some reports of using dextrose, so you can think about like the, um, um, oh, why am I forgetting about this? Uh, Rectal, thank you, rectal prolapses. There's also reports of using granulation tissue, or there's talks about using, like, getting an ACE wrap and or just, like, 4 by 4 gauze and, and, and putting that, soaking that into a dextrose solution, and that's supposed to osmotically decrease some of the fluid, uh, and holding it. How long do you hold it? Depends on how long it's been stuck and how much uh, edema is present. Um, you know, reports are 5 to 10 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah. No, it was, and uh, yeah, a handful of patients, uh, my colleagues, and I tried it once on a kid. It didn't, it was so-so. Um, manual reduction, so that's, you know, the one, of your, uh, one of your options. Granulated sugar, the, the few case reports I saw that were published said you have to put that on there for an hour. Uh, puncture, we're going to talk about that. Uh, I did an informal poll of some of my colleagues. No one's punctured. Uh, dorsal slit, so kind of, you know, this is kind of, I would say number four is kind of your ball of the arena as, as to what you have in your um, repertoire of uh, ways to kind of help with the paraphimosis. Five and down, I would kind of get a urologist involved, and we'll kind of talk about some of these other ones here. Um, this is the Dundee uh, approach. This is kind of out of the British General Urology as well. 
they talk about using a yeah, 20, well, what'd you say? Oh, <laughs> I think they talked about using a 27 gauge and making 20 punctures in uh, the patient. This is, this is obviously an adult male. Uh, I think it was described also as an adult male. And they did like 17 males and they said it worked great. They decompressed the edema uh, that had uh, happened and yeah. Informal, informal poll of attendings. I've never done it. No one's ever done it. I don't. I don't think it's typically done. No, no, no. Sorry. Thank you. The, they're punch. The so glands, penises are the distal aspect, and they're puncturing the foreskin where the edema, uh, the venous congestion has kind of occurred, and to get rid of some of that edema. Yeah. But uh, it's you're, yeah, it's not going to happen. And then it, I mean, it was published in the pediatric EM literature in '93 that. And they describe just using a one-time uh, puncture to help it, but no one does it. Um, hyaluronidase. So there, there's some stuff out there uh, about using hyaluronidase, as it's kind of a it helps break break up hyaluronic acid. Uh, I think the new semi up and coming trend is to kind of they inject it in the back between the scapula of kids, and they might put an IV into the sub Q to infiltrate fluids. So this is like one use of hyaluronic acid. But uh, there's some uh, urology literature about using hyaluronic acid, so you may see somebody ask from the OR for this to be brought down. Um, Does it work right away? You know, I'm trying to remember what the uh, time frame went on this was. Maybe applied to the skin? Oh, no, that was the lidocaine. That was the EMLA. I don't remember. One cc was applied, multiple sites, and it doesn't say how, much, how quickly it works. This is a one, uh, yeah, we kind of talked about this, about the granulated sugar. It was about an hour use of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Say it again. The references, it says it's the number one, the textbook of small animals. Yeah. Mike likes the obscure. So, <laughs> this was like this was a little bit kind of a uh, kind of a you know kind of a whole kind of wanted to show you all the things that, that may be used out there. So from just from what I've seen, been uh, that's typically used out there, the compression uh, theory that Dr. Langdorfer talked about it, uh, is one thing that ha I would recommend trying that out with either a four by four gauze, some type of gauze material, and just holding it and uh, allowing for that uh, to decompress. Ice pack. Uh, there was one. Uh, there are a few things about ice packs, and it may help in some patients. Um, a dextrocyte solution or granulated sugar. Soak that. Uh, soak that into the gauze. That might be a, uh, an option. And those are fairly uh, non-painful maneuvers. So I think you could do that with either maybe a little Tylenol coating orally uh, to kind of give the patient some pain medication because it does hurt, uh, especially for uh, the, you know the typical age group, four years and less uh, of age group of boys. Uh, my uh, stand, my kind of uh, at, uh, approach to patients and sedation and painful medications. I talk to the mom or dad, whoever's there in the beginning, and say, um, I kind of give them an idea of how painful what we're going to do is going to be, and I say we can try this X-way with some analgesia intravenously, orally, or we can put them out for sedation. Uh, and you'll find a whole repertoire of people as to how aggressive they are with sedation. Someone just like let's knock them out. Let's get it done, and it'll be best for the kid, and they'll uh, have no experience. And I think it's, like with anything, it's informed consent. You have to kind of talk to the family. 
my one recommendation would be that if you get past the uh, compression stage of it and it doesn't look like it's going to be a quick one, bypass the uh, penile block in kids. My recommendation, my personal thing, 30-year-old um, gentleman, you know, patient, yeah, talk to him. You can talk to him about it, informed consent. Four-year-old boy, he's, it's going to be screaming pain. So I, I go to procedural sedation, and you know, typically pet ketamine is a great one for kids to do this. Any questions on that? The dorsal slit, we, uh, just one other case, we, I, you know, uh, with one of our urologists, we did a dorsal slit at the bedside and reduced it after very tight paraphimosis. Uh, and then typically those are, you know, they're followed up by urologists, and sometimes they have to get a circumcision later on. It kind of depends on how aggressive they get. All right. Uh, nurse comes up to you. Uh, she's a relatively new nurse. She's got a 14-month-old girl with a fever, three, four days, and they want, you, know, you order a cath urine. Something doesn't look right. Uh, the mom says there's something wrong. So uh, what's this? Rush me. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Just describe what you're seeing. No gloves. No gloves. <laughs> so we'll say that's mom. <laughs> yeah, so you're not seeing a, you're seeing a, you're not seeing a vaginal orifice. So there's some type of... Um, yeah, absence there of vaginal, uh, vaginal orifice. And the, the most likely cause of this is the two epithelium layers there are kind of binding together, and you've got like a labial adhesions going on. And, um, and I, I like to bring this up because I get, you know, uh, female pelvic room exam patients, those are easy. You, know, you kind of get the informed consent, get a chaperone, and you're good to go. But, uh, you know, what's the best way to, uh, to evaluate a girl? And I, I always say, you know, try to get try to get parents there throughout the entire process. I've never actually tried this, but that actually may be a good idea. Uh, I see many residents trying to look uh, by spreading the labia apart. You kind of get a good look, but not always. Um, the uh, knee, knee chest is a great way, and this is kind of a, this coincides with this picture, or correlates with this picture, and it kind of gives you a, a different picture of the vaginal um, vault there. Uh, but I, I really I encourage you to try this. The labia majora are highly denervated. They don't hurt the girls. Um, it's, this is a great way to look uh, when you have to do an exams for, uh, I've had just one vaginal foreign body, but it was a great way to look for that, uh, to look for, to get a better look at vag uh, labial adhesions. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, I think it, you get the most, you get a better look by, uh, better look at the entire vaginal vault by uh, kind of spreading outwards and uh, apart the labia majora, and it does not hurt the girls. They, I mean, they're obviously apprehensive about the entire exam, and those who are not apprehensive, they're just, you know, talking away with their moms. Yeah, so uh, Carolyn Sachs, who came to talk with us about uh, the child and sexual exam, also said, grab the labia and pull out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, 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 by pull, I, sh I may have over-exaggerated pull out. It is more of a kind of a pull towards you. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I see this a lot, and you can see you kind of get some view, but I, the, you know, my one little N of one, I had a little piece of bubble gum in one girl, three-year-old, who put it in there, and I, you can't see anything there, but you get a great view of what's going on by this view. So what's next? So you know, you know, so you see that first little girl, the 14-month-old girl. She's got the labial adhesions. Uh, what do you do for those? Cut it open. Uh, 
So Howard's going to go to Australia. He's going to be cutting open uh, labial adhesions on unanesthetized kids. <laughs> Estrogen cream, excellent. And so, uh, you know, my, huh? That's no fun. Um, so this typically occurs in the prepubertal process in kids. And uh, it's been described as using estrogen cream. There's no solid, uh, there's multiple topical estrogen creams out there. And when I kind of reviewed things, there was no one particular uh, concoction or combination of estrogen cream that was like the best 1%, 4%. But typically a low dose, I think Premarin cream is a tray name of one that's commonly used uh, for two to four weeks. I would advise uh, the family about some of these transient things because like, uh, some of the few reports I did see, there was a little bit of transient breast enlargement. Uh, and uh, some uh, vulva pigmentation, that did subside after the treatment was done. Um, so typically what's described is using the topical estrogen cream that mom just puts on onto the uh, labial adhesions, so right there pretty much in the middle of the crease. Put it for two to four weeks once it se fully separates. Then put, to, put some type of uh, petroleum jelly on top of that to keep the separations, um, I guess it can help continue the separation. Now there is such a thing as imperfect vagina. So, yes. Now, tell just from looking at that last picture that this was labial adhesions versus imperfect hymen? Mm, oh, I don't have it up. Mm. Versus hymen? Well, there's obviously we're not seeing the hymen here, but so I don't know that I've ever seen this labial adhesion thing for real, so does the imperfect hymen look different than this? Uh, you know, that's actually a great point, and I think the tip, I mean, there might have either, you'd either have to go back to ask mom, has she ever seen uh, something or is this something that's newly come on? So it might be, have to be a historical thing. And I don't think you can look just off of this and say that this is imperfect versus labial adhesions. My understanding about the imperfect hymen is you would actually, you would, you would be able to see into the bulb and then there would be a hymen behind right in the middle yeah, of the bulb. I'm, I'm, I'm oh. So, I mean, the imperfect hymen is one condition. That is, there, there is an imperfect vagina. Right. You have to go historically to see what mom and what she's seen. Was there was there uh, something else uh, about that? So you don't cut it open. <laughs> you you uh, do not send the patients to Dr. Howard to cut open. This is one. Uh, it's not the greatest picture, and I don't know how well it's going to uh, come up here. But this is one report. Uh, of an imperfect, uh, I mean, sorry, labial adhesions that was treated in about, this like, says eight weeks after and pretty much back to normal baseline. The answer to this question is the tape test. Say again? <laughs> the answer to this question is the tape test. Tape test? Where, where are you reading these things? Oh, <laughs> I think that's just tissue. I'm not sure. <laughs> Anything else on this one? All right. What's this? Yeah, hydro, so yeah, you guys slam dunked it. Um, I was, you know, I grew up that, uh, <laughs> come again? Nurse looking for an IV. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I was talking about my training that, oh, transillumination of the scrotum is the best way to look at it. And, I, and then I found, came across a few textbooks that say, no, it's unreliable. And so I'm sure there's some case report where some surgeon got dinged because they tried to transilluminate the uh, scrotum and they thought it was a hydrocele and sure enough um, uh, sure enough there might have been some hernia associated with it so I'm sure that's where that came from 
this is a you know the classical teaching that if you put some type of light source onto the scrotal sac and if it transilluminates well, it's supposed to be just a simple hydrocele. So the, the question comes up, and you know obviously in the ER you're going to have this child with an enlarged scrotum uh, that now is presenting vomiting, not eating, you know, and you can you you know rely upon this? So you know the kind of the question kind of comes up: Do you have to ultrasound you know ultrasound these masses or not? And I, and I threw up there all asymptomatic uh, masses, and so I, I kind of preclude this by saying that they're vomiting, fussing, irritable. And, um, and this kind of goes a couple things. Um, a communicating hydrocele, uh, what this kind of alludes to is that, uh, is that you have some communication going on, and so there might be some fluctuance of the size of the hydrocele. So the hydrocele may enlarge and decrease throughout the day. What's classically taught is when the kids are supine, this could be a little bit less, and as they get active and walk around more, that it'll enlarge. Well, that sounds like a hernia goes in and out. So you can't rely upon that history as much as to whether there's uh, an isolated uh, hydrocele and or through this same process vaginalis, you can get a little bit of a hernia that comes through. So and this is usually, this process is usually seen in the first year of life. Usually they're born with this and they typically, um, uh, they typically have this, uh, and it, it usually, if it's communicating, it may or may not resolve on its own. It may need surgery. And if it's non-communicating, meaning that it's a, kind of a blind pouch right there, it should reabsorb by one year of life. However, if you've got a, a, a one-year-old or someone who hasn't completely resolved their hydrocele, you may have a little bit of a hernia, that, or sorry, a small bowel or mesenteric fat or something else that comes through that might become strangulated or uh, might be causing some ischemic uh, difficulties to the bowel for which you need to consider. So even though a patient, I guess my bottom line in this one is even though if a kid has a history of a hydrocele and they're not coming in symptomatic and if it's enlarged, you can't completely rely upon the uh, transillumination to kind of help you out with that. Uh, let's do another uh, swollen red penis. So talk to me about this one. What do you guys see there? So this is a 10 or 1 boy, so he has no hair. Oh, the hair tourniquet. So uh, they looked for a hair tourniquet. There was none. But that's, a, that's an excellent, excellent point. Yeah, so talk to me about the rash. Uh, you know, some are, some aren't. There is, a, there is some purpura there. Uh, and you know, this particular case, I, this was a case report I pulled off uh, a journal, and I do not, I believe that they said most of the lesions were on the lower extremity, none on the abdomen or on the face. But I, I do not know 100% on that one. How's the kidney function? <laughs> Good one. So what do you think about Howard? Good. What else are you thinking about? Yeah. Yeah, so this particular case happened to be uh, HSP. Uh, and I probably should have kind of brought, uh, asked you about some of the other things, uh, but what you thought about this. But here's kind of a differential of HSP. So this HSP is a vasculitis in children. And I have a slide that um, is a couple slides ahead. And I'll talk a little bit more about it. But here are some of the differentials of HSP. Um, you know, this, this might have just looked like a bad yeast infection, balanitis type picture, except for 
they had that purpuric rash that didn't quite kind of fit the you know uh, fungal distribution it was kind of going down the legs and someone uh, pointed out you know was this elsewhere on the body so that was kind of a um, astute uh, presumption that maybe there's something else is going on but you also have to kind of think about you know uh, just rashes in general that there are other things that can cause uh, either a purpuric uh, type rash or lesion um, how do you confirm HSP yeah yeah, it's, it's history, and you're typically not going to be able to do it in the ED because um, no lab test that you have readily available to you in the ED is going to get it to you. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, and the reason it's difficult is uh, in some cases early, early steroid use is beneficial, but when you look at some of the other uh, things that might be there, yeah, GIA, you might be kind of messing around with the diagnosis, you know, some of these things are like, you know, do I want to be giving steroids to some of these other things in which it might, you know, another vasculitis? So it's kind of difficult to throw steroids around uh, willy-nilly. Um, and you kind of ask about the renal function of the kid. So uh, renal is renal involvement and, um, uh, and they're pooping blood and they're, the vasculitis also goes to the abdomen. Um, Christian, what else do you know about HSP? Yeah. So they kind of start out with the rash. Uh, what else? Uh, what else is there about it? Tyler, help him out. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. It's, it, and I didn't, uh, it, it's, it can actually get to quite a few systems, um, but the, some of those other ones are a little bit rare, like the neurologic and cardiac. Uh, typically two to eight years old. It can start out with a macular palpable uh, blanching rash that does progress to the more typical purpuric petechial lesions. Uh, lasts from days to a few months, and it's usually around the game park, ballpark around one to two weeks. Arthritis is, so kind of like the things for which HSP needs to come in is if there's you know abdominal pain, not tolerating feeds, you're kind of concerned about intussusception, you'll work that one up, and those kids typically won't get better with Zofran, so those kids need to come in. Arthritis is which are just kind of impeding daily uh, um, levels of activity. And then uh, renal function is uh, about 20, 25% of kids start having some um, uh, renal uh, failure issues or uh, issues with that. Rarely do you get into um, other things, although those, those are described. The treatment, so I kind of threw up the question mark around treatment. Um, you know, it's hard because of that huge differential of all those other things that it could be. Uh, my practice is typically not to start steroids, although, the, you know, I'd, I'd love to, and if it was, a, you know, 8 to 5 and happen to have a nephrologist or someone else that can kind of bounce the idea off of or see if there's something else to, uh, to, you know, rheumatology, which is so hard to get a hold of in 8 to 5 in the uh, daytime or in general, uh, to kind of confirm uh, the test to make sure that nothing else is going on to start steroids, because those have been found in a few series to kind of help kids out. Isn't it usually preceded by, like, a viral AGE? Yeah. Oh, I didn't put, I'm sorry, I didn't put that up there. But usually there's, like, some type of viral process, which the average kid in this age range is sick once a month anyway, so, yeah. So in summary, I just wanted to kind of uh, remind you guys to take a look at the anatomy and remember the differential of uh, things that are going on inside of a scrotal sac or uh, other processes that might be occurring. And uh, take, uh, 
like I said, I docked myself off for a couple points, as uh, Howard may or may not have done for the reduction of his paraphimosis. But uh, keep that in mind that uh, procedural sedation is probably a better way to go than uh, penile blocking a kid. Any other questions?